Welcome to the Convex Conversation with me, broadcaster Helen Fospero. As our climate emergency deepens, the CEO of Triodos Bank UK, one of the world's most sustainable banks, believes the current banking system, if adapted, could be a catalyst for a more sustainable future and fairer economy. Based in Bristol, Dr. Bevis Watts is perhaps the first and only environmentalist to lead a UK bank and believes much of the financial sector is currently undermining efforts to tackle climate change and societal issues. Today, we'll explore what can be done to change this and how our financial world can tackle issues which threaten our way of life as well as the planet. Bevis has spoken at key environmental conferences like the Blue Earth Summit and COP26 in Glasgow. He spent the last 25 years or so in various guises, leading organisations which have a positive impact on the environment and society, including being Chief Executive of Avon Wildlife Trust. And I'm looking forward to hearing the extraordinary discover he made whilst on a Swallows and Amazon-style adventure kayaking on the River Avon. Bevis, it's a real treat actually to feature you on the podcast. And we have Sir David Attenborough's favourite cameraman, Doug Allen, to thank for this. We do, yeah. No, Doug's a good friend of mine in Bristol. I've been lucky enough to know for about 10 years and a keen diving hero of mine as well. And you're a passionate diver too, aren't you? I am. I've been diving for about 25 years or so, so never happier than in the sea, underwater, alone with mad wildlife that looks at me and thinks, what's my role in the world? And I look, look at them and think the same thing. Does it feel when you're diving, she says, having never dived, it's on, on the list of things to do, as if you are in an absolutely different world and a very different area of the planet? Yeah, well, it is a very different world. I mean, it's hugely meditative as well to dive because you can't speak to people. So it really is about interacting with wildlife and being completely submerged in another world. So that's why I think it has such a positive impact on me. Just the fascination of learning about completely different wildlife and ecosystems that are in the underwater world. As well as some big fish under the sea, you're quite fond of the little critters that live in our seabed. My favourite type of diving is muck diving. So in and among all the seaweed and algae and sandy bottoms to find all the weird little creatures that live there. So uh, yeah, I'm never happier than muck diving. Muck diving. You need to be part of the Convet Seascape Survey. That's exactly what they're doing at the minute, looking at everything in the seabed and working out how much carbon's stored there and lots of little critters they're examining at the minute. So I can see you being involved in that maybe one day. We'll talk <laughs> about that another time. But your working life has been steeped, it's fair to say, in sustainability. And I just want to start us off, if you could explain perhaps where your love of the environment and your desire to protect our planet comes from originally. Well, I mean, I don't think anyone's ever quite sure of that and what sort of innately drives them. But I mean, my name's part of it because I got my name because Britain's first ever nature writer, and in fact, the the person that coined the phrase wildlife in a nature context is an author called Richard Jeffries. And it's 175 years this year since he was born. But his most famous work was Bevis, The Story of a Boy. And it's about a boy and his friend and his dog out exploring, having adventures, sort of doing the right thing by others, particularly those less fortunate than himself. So there was some pre-programming in the name my father in particular wanted me to have. And is that the kind of life perhaps you led as a boy? Were you quite adventurous and always out on uh, nature kind of adventures? Well, I grew up in, in suburbia, really, and I was fortunate enough to spend a lot of time walking the dogs and a lot of time outdoors. And I've always been that kind of person, happiest outdoors, walking, cycling, whatever. So yeah, in the sea. What drove you to take on roles that really make a difference very early on in your career? 
Well, I was a business student and, you know, being sort of prepared like a lot of my peers to go and work in the IT industry or in the brewing industry or whatever. And I was studying in Sweden for a year and it was like living in the future in the mid-1990s. Sweden was already way ahead in terms of sustainability and people also spent a lot more time in nature. Most people spent their weekends in nature, in log cabins and so on. But I lost my father during that year. So I was sort of at a very reflective point of life thinking, well, what's life all about? He was a teacher had lots of people telling us that it had a big impact on their life. So these two things came together, I suppose, living in this futuristic society that was already had taking cans and bottles back to the supermarket to get five pence back, as it were, on your bottles and things, kroner as it was back then. So I think those two things came together. And I then decided to sort of major on corporate environmental management in the latter part of a business degree. And, And everything has then stemmed from those days, really. I then became fascinated with waste management and that went on to be postgraduate studies and onwards from there. And it was recycling, wasn't it? One of your first roles that you were involved in. Yeah, I suppose I, through sort of environmental auditing, realised, you know, I, I was doing an environmental audit at a university that bought 3,000 reams of copy paper a month and none of it got recycled at the time. And that was because there was no markets for those materials. So I just became fascinated with that. And that was my focus of my postgraduate study. So in the early part of my career, I worked for what is now a global circular economy organization called RAP, the Waste and Resources Action Program. That was the first 10 years of my career, I suppose, working in recycling and looking at how do you bring investment into that sector and how do you grow it when it was a very nascent industry. I would imagine that was probably quite difficult in that time, was it? Well, it was the very beginnings. Government policy still had to be established in a number of areas. Today, we've worked for a long time now with things like standards for composted waste, you know, so you know what you're trading if you're selling compost to someone. None of those things existed. So we were putting in place at RAP lots of things, you know, there, there was no silver bullet to develop things. And that's a bit of a metaphor for where we are on our net zero transition and other societal transitions. There's no silver bullet, no one thing that will change anything. You know, you have to have a lot of different things and uh, a lot of pillars put in place to build out the change we need to see. And what do you think those pillars need to be? And are we looking at nature-based solutions to try and help us out of the crisis that we currently find ourselves in with the climate? Absolutely. I mean, a lot of people have a very myopic focus on net zero and carbon emissions, but the other side of the coin, two sides of the same problem is is nature's decline. Our biggest single asset in both being more resilient to climate change, but also in reducing our emissions is the restoration of nature. So we need to shift to an economy that is nature connected and a society that sees itself as part of nature rather than where we are at the minute, which is an economy that entirely sees nature at its service and to be extracted from and exploited. We start to manage ourselves within our planetary boundaries and natural resources and replenish those. And how do we do that? And how do we convince the rest of the world's banks to do some of the things which we'll talk about in a minute that Triodos is doing? Just on the finance side of nature-based solutions, there is a lot to put in place to give confidence the kind of things people might be prepared to pay for, whether that's carbon sequestration, clean water, clean air, flood defences, that there are ways to measure those outputs and everybody sort of be convinced that they will deliver in the same way concrete infrastructure might for flooding, for example. But ultimately, you know, this is partly about the financial sector also re-educating itself and investing its time and resources in really wanting to do this and finding ways to make Make it happen. But there is more than enough money in the world. We need to just have the right motivation and put the right infrastructure in place. And we've been trying to pioneer that at Triodos and have pioneered some nature-based investments and some first in the UK investing in, in rewilding and natural flood solutions and so on. 
Tell us about how Triodos is different and some of those investments and solutions that you just mentioned. Well, Triodos has been around for more than 40 years and was set up on the premise that our current sort of financial system will only really lead us one way. If you just have motivation to make money from money and maximise profits, then that's really not going to lead society to a good place. So Triodos was set up to only finance things that can demonstrate positive environmental, social and cultural impact. And if you say that's what you're going to do, then you have to be completely transparent. So we've always published every loan and investment that we make. So you can be the judge of that as our customers and say, well, are we getting getting that right in our decisioning and so on. And we're completely transparent in many other matters, including the emissions from our portfolio. We've published that for many years. Also in our approach to say fundamental things like pay and we don't pay performance related bonuses. So it's partly about how we use money. It's partly about how we run a bank. And it's partly about the kind of business we then try to be more broadly. So, you know, we have the highest levels of environmental and social governance considerations and everything that we do. So our new international headquarters in the Netherlands when it opened was the world's first circular economy building in time designed to be deconstructed at the end of its life and taken away for reuse and recycling. You seem to have a holistic approach, I think, and having read some of the background and some of the things you've done, it feels like community is also at the heart. I was reading that you provided social housing for around 22,000 people, a supply of green energy to almost a million homes and the production of 29.5 million organic meals. I'm not sure whether those figures are up to date, but you do see ways of benefiting the community through your banking business, don't you? Absolutely. I mean, ultimately, the win-win is when you find environmental projects that can deliver social outcomes or you find social community projects that have positive environmental impacts as well. So looking for those win-wins. So, you know, we finance a lot of community ownership. That, for me, is one of the most inspiring things we do, where communities own a wind turbine or own a hydro scheme or a school has a, a solar array on its roof and all of that is generating an income for those community projects and, and assets. But that holistic approach is the only way to go because this economic transition we have to make to net zero is the biggest transition we've had to make since the Industrial Revolution. And we can get there by increasing social inequality, or we can get there in ways that address social inclusion as well. And to give you an example of that, there's been lots of well-meaning government policies over the years, like car scrappage screams or feed-in tariffs that support people having solar panels on their roofs and all these things. But if you stop and think about it, they primarily benefit the wealthy middle classes and people that already own homes and have a roof and already have a car that they want to scrap and get a more efficient one and, and so on. So, you know, it really... Doing this transition well means creating some North Stars, like we should have a public transport system that is the most cost-effective, most convenient and safest way to travel. If we can set those North Stars and think, how are we creating social inclusion and the redistribution of wealth through this transition, then we'll end up in a better place as a society as well as better outputs for the planet. Do you find, though, that it's very difficult to change hearts and minds? That all makes absolute sense to me, and I wish we were living in that kind of world. But it feels to me that there's a lot of people that don't see the world like that, which is a huge shame. How do you go about trying to make these changes? I presume legislation's at the heart of it and governments around the world. You're dead right. We can all live in our bubbles. And, you know, I can be guilty of that, try and take myself outside of it and say, well, how do other people see this as well? If we talk about the change we need to make in the finance sector, then that isn't going to happen 
voluntarily, and that's been proven to be the case. Some, you know, people have talked about climate risks to financial institutions for 20 years or so. You know, in, in the mid-noughties, people were talking about things called stranded assets, which means investing in oil fields that you could never take the oil out of and things like that. So that's been around for a long time, but we do need to have stronger regulation. And I think the, the speed of change is nowhere near fast enough. So we have to then think, how do we regulate and legislate to, to have a financial sector that plays a different role? And one that just isn't making money for money's sake, but is really trying to direct the flows of capital to the right things in our society with more responsibility than it's shown in the past. You go as far as to say that the financial sector is currently undermining efforts to tackle climate change and societal issues. What are the sort of examples of that that lead you to that conclusion? Well, there are numerous reports that critique what the financial sector is doing. But if you look at the levels of fossil fuel investment since the Paris Accord was signed in 2015, the 60 largest systemic banks in the world continue to increase their fossil fuel investments in every year until about 2021, when it actually went down. And it's continued to go down since then, but it's still higher than it was in 2017. So we're eight years on from the Paris Accord being signed, yet we're investing more in fossil fuels. So if that isn't undermining efforts to achieve net zero, I don't know what is. And it isn't just about how banks use their money. Their whole systems of charging, ultimately, people who are the poorest in our society are the ones who pay most for their banking. And this repeats in other industries as well. It's the same for energy. And you've seen all the arguments on having compulsory meters installed and prepayment meters into people's homes and things. The poorest people in our society live in the least energy efficient homes. And the poorest people in our society are the ones that pay the most for their banking services because they aren't the ones that are holding high credit balances and getting free insurance and free other products in return for that. So that's what we have to revisit. Is that fundamentally right? Is that socially inclusive? So it's partly about how they use the money, but it's also about their banking practices. And how at Triodos do you help people with things like that, make their homes more energy efficient? Because you are right, it is the poorest people in society that always seem to be penalised and end up paying a lot more for these kinds of things. Yeah, I mean, I think it's our responsibility as a bank to try and think with all our customers, how do we support their net zero transition? So how can we support them in giving us the best data and uh, understanding of their carbon emissions if they're not familiar with that? How can we perhaps provide them with new products or new investment to help them in that transition? So we do a lot of work in social housing and we're working with a number of social housing organisations to think how do they get all of their housing stock up to at least EPCC by 2030, which is what they're required to do. But we also look for innovative models. So we've supported housing cooperatives and co-housing projects and so on, which are different ownership models, but built to a very high sustainability standard for a number of years. And recently, we financed the UK's first private housing development, and albeit for private sales, and not necessarily for the most vulnerable people in our society, but it's the first net zero housing development built for private sale. So we try and sort of, if you like proof of concept and break barriers and find these pathfinder projects. That must have been very appealing, I would imagine, to a lot of people when you saw that housing community. Can you describe what it was like? It's always very fulfilling to do things that you think are really 
groundbreaking and providing leadership. And, and that's just one example. We financed the first major rollout of electric vehicle charging points to 400 supermarket car parks a couple of years ago. And now you see these kind of things popping up everywhere. And I think it's a lot of fun and it's one of the most rewarding things we do as a bank. And it's also very rewarding for our customers because the, when they see those kind of stories and projects, they realise, well, that's what they're doing. That's the choice they're making is to try and support a pioneer in doing those sorts of things. And I think a lot of people need some help on that journey. You know, everybody talks about net zero. For many people, it's a soundbite or a comment, or they don't really understand what net zero is. And actually, I think we could all do with a bit of a guiding hand and then start, as we change our lives, start embracing that change, living in a much cleaner, more sustainable world. I mean, you've spoken at some big events like the Blue Earth Summit and COP26 and many more high-profile environmental conferences. What state do you think we're in, Bevis, in terms of the climate crisis right now? Where are we at? Oh, I think we're in a very challenging place. And my opinion doesn't really matter. You listen to the scientists and you read the IPPC reports and they use phrases like code red for humanity and the instances of flooding, of wildfires, all of these sort of things are already way beyond what the scientists expected in terms of the tipping points we might reach and how quickly we might reach them. So I think we're in a really challenging situation, which, you know, fundamentally you'll see societies breaking down. We saw a little bit of that during the pandemic when the state didn't step in effectively in South America. You saw rioting and you saw people displaced en masse. And indeed, we see people being displaced in the Middle East and North Africa. A lot of the sort of Syrian immigration was actually partly because it was a war-torn country, but also partly because of famine driven through drought. So we're in a really difficult dire place where this was supposed to be the decade of action and we're about to tip into 2024 and we need to do a lot more a lot faster. Scientists have been warning of climate change, well, as far back, I think, as the 60s. And there seems to have been slow progress over the last six decades. What are the main barriers, do you think, Bevis? Well, if I focus on the finance sector, we have to think what is the role of the finance sector? And it should be, firstly, I think, to keep people's money safe and B, use people's money in their long-term interest to create a future that they actually want to live in. If you look back with the financial crisis and then what we're learning about how money is used, and you can look at campaigns like Make My Money Matter, which does a brilliant job of exposing how the financial sector is using our money and so on, then I'm not sure those things are true. So we have to then look at it and mandate it differently, legislate to create a different industry. And that isn't sort of say I'm trying to create something that's anti-competitive. You know, you need competition in markets for customers to get good value, but it's about putting red lines around something. Should we really be allowing the financial sector to continue to invest in new fossil fuel exploration and exploitation? I can't see how that is at all aligned with anything anybody sensible has ever said on climate change and climate risk. I've been re-looking at the tiny little bit of pension that I have. I've been re-looking at, hang on, what, what's that money doing? And what am I putting my very tiny little pot into? Where does it go? What about the big companies, you know, your, your Shells and BPs of the world that are putting a lot of money into wind farms and things like that? Do they fall into the same investing in fossil fuels banner, do you think? Or are there some big companies like that who are making some big strides with the billions they have behind them in more greener energy? Well, we need all companies and industries to transition. I'm sceptical and I, I think you'll find easily, if you were to Google search, scepticism about the net zero plans of the large energy companies. Because whilst there are investments in 
renewable energy infrastructure, there continues to be new fossil fuel project investment as well. And there are huge vested interests there in making sure they can continue to burn and use what they've already heavily invested in for a long time. So this is why our pension funds have a critical role, because they are significant investors and through shares and and so on owners of those companies and they have to effect change at a board level and exert shareholder power on our behalf to bring about faster change. So with any company, I'll include Triodos in this, any company making claims about sustainability and so on, everybody should have a healthy air of cynicism and just approach and scrutinise them and demand transparency about what it is they're doing. There is an awful lot of greenwash in society at present. I work a lot in the transport sector in Britain, in the rail and also in the NHS sector as well. And there are some amazing things going on, but you are also very much aware of quotes and sound bites and greenwashing. And I'm not suggesting in rail or NHS, but many people seem to jump on the bandwagon and publish intentions and don't actually follow through. Your net zero ambition at the bank is 2035. I would imagine that's science-based and I would imagine that is something that you'll deliver on and have to prove, Bevis, that you are making that progress to that 2035 target, which is actually not much more than a decade away. It's not long, is it? We spent a long time developing our net zero target and said, well, really, we want to be net zero by 2035 at the latest is what we said. What we were trying to do is deliver a powerful message to say, well, we're a bank that's never invested in fossil fuels, never invested in aviation or mining or any sort of high emitting sectors. And yet the earliest we think we can get there is 2035. And this is at a time when lots of financial institutions are going, yeah, we'll be net zero by 2050, which is just such a hollow phrase, because ultimately for a financial institution, it means taking responsibility for all of the emissions in your portfolio. So everything that's emitted, but you then have to balance that portfolio. So even for us, we can see, back to your earlier point on nature-based solutions, we have to dramatically increase the investment we're making in sustainable forestry, in regenerative agriculture, in nature-based solutions to flood defences or whatever, in order to sequester more emissions directly in the projects that we finance. And that's what net zero means if you follow the science-based target initiative guidance, which we do. And we've had our near-term target verified of 2030, that they're confident we've got all the right things in train to that point, net zero will really be hardest at the latter stages when you're really trying to address the sort of really hard to address emissions as you near your target date. But yeah, that's what we were trying to say. It's almost a bit of a disruptor to say, well, all these hollow statements are just greenwash because it's very easy to say net zero by 2050 and commit to that when it's the best part of 30 years away still and you won't be around and responsible for it because you'd probably retired to a lot of the <laughs> chief execs and boards that are making those claims. So the greenwash point more generally feeds why I think we need more red lines around the industry because the challenge is with all of the greenwashing there is, and it's great it's getting called out and it's great to see the financial conduct authority and the advertising authorities in the UK banning one bank's adverts earlier this year and taking action against them for what they're saying. But ultimately, what that does is it puts the highest burden of proof on banks like Triodos to prove really what we're doing is green. Whereas if you're investing in fossil fuels and trawler fishing or whatever it is, or palm oil or deforestation, hugely destructive effects, You have no burden of proof whatsoever. You're not required to declare it. You're not required to be transparent. And so, you know, to address greenwashing, we have to call out and ask for much greater transparency in what everybody's doing with the money and and focus on that as much as we do the burden of proof to say you're green. 
And if the, just perhaps talking about the UK current banking system at the moment can be a catalyst for a more sustainable future and make positive changes, are you able to share some of your knowledge and and your findings to help others? I don't know whether that works like that in the banking system, but can you share your wins and what have worked for you so that other people can benefit from the journey that you've been on well over the last 40 something years? That's very much the ethos of Triodos Bank. We publish an awful lot about our methodologies and how we go about assessing the companies that we finance and so on in our annual report and accounts and, and are completely transparent in that and trying to encourage others to follow suit. But we were involved in financing a methodology for how you would go about assessing and, and then publishing the emissions in a financial portfolio. We were one of 11 Dutch organisations that started an initiative called the Partnership for Carbon Accounting Financials. That's now become the kind of global best practice framework that people people use. And we also tried to sort of foster collaboration with like-minded banks across the world. And in 2009, founded something called the Global Alliance for Banking on Values, which now has more than 60 banks worldwide, all collaborating together to try and share best practice and learn from one another and think, well, where can we sort of share and and co-create the sort of infrastructure that's needed to grow banks like us? So that sharing and trying to support the wider sector is very much something we do. And also, as an example, part participated in numerous sort of training programs with universities, with other large banks to try and sow some seeds and get people thinking in a different way as well. Yeah, collaboration, I think, is a word when I'm hosting the conferences I mentioned a moment ago that comes up as a theme. It's better to put all these minds together, isn't it, and share what works well rather than everybody else going on their own individual journey, because we haven't got time for that, have we? We need to be all pulling both as businesses and individuals if we are going to make that difference and and have a planet that we can actually live on. I just wondered thinking about what keeps you awake at night, because I have to confess, Bevis, all of that keeps me awake as a a mum of two teenage children. I entirely agree with your point on collaboration. No, nobody has all the answers, and I'm not sat here saying Triodos Bank has all the answers. We're being very open, and Net Zero is a learning journey for us as much as anything else. But I think we get a lot right, and we get a lot more right than the majority of the industry. But what keeps me awake at night, and that's almost another podcast, it's a very long list running a bank. But ultimately, the speed of action and can we affect change fast enough is something I really worry about. And we we commissioned some research really into something called eco-anxiety because I think so many people now hold this tension in their diaphragm or this headache in the back of their minds about what all this means for future generations, but also, you know, in their lifetime. So we naturally worry about that with an analytical mind from the bank's portfolio. What will flood risk mean? What will severe drought or heat mean for the things we finance and the projects we finance? But I think fundamentally, on a human level, you just worry about people and our coexistence and how we're all going to get on in a world that's going to be very, very stressed and strained if we don't act faster. We did a podcast with an Australian vet who does a lot of work in Africa and places like that. And just one of the facts that came out doing that podcast was that 100 years ago, we had 500,000 rhino. And now I think it's down to around 15,000 in Africa. My grandfather lived to 100 and he was born in 1894. And he told me about all the changes. You know, don't be surprised what you see because the changes he'd seen in that 100 years. It just struck me that's a hundred years of certainly in that wildlife community, the rhino community, absolute devastation. What on earth have we done in that hundred years? And it 
just highlighted to me the speed of which things truly, truly have to change. And I think in my personal journey, nature is just really shining through and has some of the answers for us. And I think we've just got to open our eyes, haven't we, and see that. I couldn't agree more. We have to look at our own transition as well. I think a similar sort of statistic is between the time of John F. Kennedy and Barack Obama being presidents of the US, the population of the world doubled. Wow. So we have to sort of really look at ourselves, you know, that transition. And if we're talking about 9 billion people by 2050, then that just underlines what we've been saying, that net zero and the kind of societal transition we need to undergo needs to happen much, much faster with much stronger political leadership. And that's not said to politicise myself. I think every party you know, has to come to the table more. I know you are a conservationist and environmentalist. And before Triodos, you were CEO of Avon Wildlife Trust. What were those days like, Bevis, at the heart of a trust like the Avon Wildlife Trust? Well, they were great times, a fantastic time in my career, a great privilege to kind of be in the middle of a spider's web of lots of people trying to influence and and support our our natural environment. They're hugely inspiring organisations, Wildlife Trusts, because the Avon Wildlife Trust employed 40 to 50 people during my time there, but it had around 1,800 active volunteers, had about 700 people on average every month volunteering with it in different guises. So hugely inspiring to be part of that. And but also, you know, working with real experts in land management and species and so on, you also really got a sense of the pressure nature was under. And so that meant when I left and, and came back to Triodos, because my second time working at the bank, I really came back with a fervour for investing in the natural environment and creating a nature-connected economy it was something I just really came away more motivated to do. Conservation is linked to your current world, and we're affected now by massive biodiversity loss, plastic pollution in the oceans. It's all connected, isn't it? It's absolutely all connected, and this is the educational re-education we need to go through. For example, soil fertility is, is fundamental to all forms of agriculture, and yet intensive agriculture ultimately depletes soil health. And so you scratch your head and think, if you're a mainstream bank or a pension fund, How can you justify making an investment that ultimately depletes the asset that the entire future of that farm or business is dependent on? There are so many things we've got wrong, including trawler fishing, which you just devastate the seabed and think, well, how how can that possibly be a sensible thing to do to invest in? And you see any future in that kind of business. There are so many things where we have to re-educate ourselves. And I wonder as people, whether we in a way have lost our connection with nature and ability to live in harmony with the planet. I think a little bit, probably one of the only silver linings of the pandemic is perhaps for many of us rediscovered that. But do you think people generally have perhaps lost some connection? It's well studied and written about. I fear as we get a bigger and bigger population and we live in more and more high-rise buildings in cities and so on, that that gets even worse. And all the wonderful documentaries we see that bring nature into our homes, they're amazing, but they're no substitute for that real connection of whether it's hearing birdsong or finding frog spawn or seeing a fish leap or whatever it is, these magical things that just enrich our day-to-day. So in my Wildlife Trust days, I was hugely passionate about trying to support young people in getting out into nature. And particularly people also from less privileged background. I remember meeting two Somali girls that are part of a very big Somali community we have here in Bristol, where I'm based. But ultimately, you know, they were on one of our nature reserves for the day and they'd never held a saw, they'd never lit a fire. 
And then you think about it, if you move to this country from Somalia and live in a high-rise building in East Bristol without private transportation, everything else, how would you? So really important that we do that work on nature. And of course, that's so good for all of our mental health too, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it's something I'm very conscious about just in myself, that sense of connection to nature of slowing down and the impact it has on my own well-being. Diving is my extreme fix, but, you know, just trying to regularly make sure you, you get out into nature and connect with wildlife, I think is a hugely important part of our mental health. Actually, I wrote a book about discovering beavers on the River Avon where nobody realised they were. And I've taken people out in, you know, a large two-man canoe from senior government officials, politicians, business leaders out to then see these beavers over the subsequent years. And every single person I take comes back with a completely different expression on their face, wide-eyed, just sheer joy at just spending a few hours on a river and seeing kingfishers and heron. And they've all managed to just see beavers as well. That's fantastic. Do tell me about this because I think you were on a sabbatical from the bank and probably not expecting to make this discovery. I gather these sightings are the first time that beavers have been back on the Avon since possibly Tudor times. So how did it come about and how were you the person that discovered that they were actually there? Well, I was using up a load of accrued holiday that I'd accrued through the pandemic and never used because I was busy focused on keeping a bank running. But former colleagues of mine at the Avon Wildlife Trust said, we've had reports of a beaver on the river Avon, would you get out in your kayak and have a look and try and get photographic evidence? And of course, once I got on the river, I realised there were definitely beavers there because it's very obvious when you see chewed trees, bark stripped off and pencil point branches cut. It's very obvious. And it took me over several months to work out where they lived, leave camera traps. But ultimately, I managed to prove there was a whole family of seven living in just one particular location. Nobody had really reported this or understood that they were there to the extent they were, and they were successfully breeding. So they'd had three babies in that year that I was following them. And anyway, this became a nationally significant story because there's been a lot of releases of beavers in controlled environments for some time. And this was kind of a population that had clearly been there for many years without any harmful interactions with mankind. They were having very positive impacts on the natural environment and the habitat they were creating for other wildlife. So it became a story and actually made Boris Johnson's conference speech when he was prime minister that year. And he coined the phrase, build back beaver, which I think don't think anyone understands what that means, but that's part <laughs> of the course, isn't it? But, uh, but yeah. It's very Boris, I, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it is. But then I published a book about it. And the book is called River Journey and it raises money for Beaver Trust and Avon Wildlife Trust. It's not something I make money from myself. No. And is the River Journey all about the beavers or have you broadened it? Well, it's partly about that adventure and sharing the adventure and what I was witness to and why beavers were important. But it's also a personal journey of just telling a little bit about the impact it had on me and nature's power to restore. Because ultimately, I was using all my accrued holiday, pretty exhausted from running a bank through the pandemic and all that. Uh, So it's partly a personal journey through all of that as well. And beavers are nature's engineers, if you like. They're a keystone species, aren't they? But I never know. I have to admit, I don't know why they're so important for our ecosystem, other than that I know they are. Maybe you can enlighten me. Well, there's all sorts of reasons. They're called a keystone species because they recreate the habitat to suit themselves. But that in turn creates great conditions for other wildlife. So whether that's sort of upland, wetland areas, what I particularly saw on the River Avon is they kind of fell willow trees. So they fall at 45 degrees, if you like, into the 
water and then the branches sprout root systems. On a really clear summer's day, you can see these root systems become giant fish nurseries. And you see swans ducking to feed off the algae that then gathers on the roots and things like that. But that's one tiny example of the role beavers can play. They can play many other roles, including help store water upstream, make us more resilient to flooding. But there's a whole range of benefits. Do you remember how you felt in your kayak when you first actually set eyes on one of them for the first time? Oh, yeah. I think it was my third trip on the river. And on an early trip, I'd heard a big splosh. I mean, commonly, that's all you'll hear. The beaver will see you first and you'll just get a big splosh. And what, I think, what, what on earth was that? But the first time I managed to see one before it saw me and swimming towards me on the river was just incredible and managed to get very lucky to get a picture of it. But I managed to. And then that was kind of the proof we needed. But extraordinarily exciting. And it was only pipped by the moment that I first went through lots of camera trap footage and suddenly realised they were breeding and that there was a tiny baby beaver in the footage I'd captured as well. And then ultimately realised about a month later that I'd managed to capture three baby beavers all in one frame. So the excitement just grew through the whole adventure. I'm hoping that if I'm ever in Bristol, you might consider <laughs> popping me on the back of your kayak and, and going well, for a little paddle. You sit paddle. in the front of the canoe and get the best view. Oh, I'll, I'll okay. steer at the back. That's, That's fine. Can we, can we fit Doug <laughs> Allen in as well for a bit of filming? We'll, <laughs> probably, we'll, we'll drag probably him not. along with a snorkel and yeah. Yeah, actually, that's that's the way to go. That's how he started out in life. You would have enjoyed a recent podcast when I talked to Merlin and Lizzie Hanbury Tennyson, who have introduced beavers back to their temperate rainforest on Bodmin Moor. And you would have also enjoyed the walk, Bevis. I've never walked in ancient woodland like that. Needless to say, when I got home, I ordered Merlin Sheldrake's Entangled Life book about the hyphae and the mycelium under the forest floor. And my reading habits have changed a lot, actually, since going to Bodmin Moor. Have you read Merlin Sheldrake? I haven't read that one, but I've read several similar books that are all about the fact that fungi really won the world. We think we do, but the interconnection of trees and how they talk to each other through mycelium and so on is amazing. It's fascinating, isn't it? Today, somebody recommended Netflix, Fantastic Fungi. So I've seen now, that. I have seen Is that, that worth a watch? Yeah, it is. Yeah, no, no, it's, it's, uh, it's quite mind-expanding. <laughs> no, I guess I can imagine that. That'll be, that's on my list of things to do later today. Just before we end, Bevis, you know that we've been asking people about the biggest risk they've ever taken in life. So I wondered, what's your biggest risk you've ever taken? I'm not sure, Helen. I'm in the business of taking risk in my daily life, I suppose, <laughs> in the bank. But I think if I go back to the start of my journey in sustainability that I was describing to you earlier, I really walked away from your standard sort of corporate graduate program career path and just thought I would follow what felt right and what really interested me in sustainability and so on. And I think that's something we all need to do just a bit more is take a risk to really listen to our gut and know that some of the things we're buying aren't that sustainable or good for us or for the planet. And yeah, so maybe that's the biggest risk is to really listen to your gut and not follow the, the head the whole time. Listen to your heart. Listen to your heart. Good words to end on. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts and your views and making time to be on the podcast and also giving us an insight into how Triodos is operating too. That's been very interesting to listen to. Let's hope that some of those changes that you're leading at Triodos UK, you know, will filter down to some of our other banking systems, certainly here in the UK, but also internationally, so that hopefully we can get there. I just wondered, were you optimistic after COP28? Any more optimism or are we still in the same kind of soundbite world? 
it's been the same pattern for a few years that the changes coming out affecting the financial sector are just far too slow and we're not seeing the scale of global action that we really need and you know there's been lots of good intentions you know Mark Carney founded something called the Glasgow Net Zero Alliance you know a G fans as it's called Glasgow for Net Zero but ultimately that's entirely reliant on voluntary action. And ultimately, we're not seeing the big US banks take the action where others are taking positive action, they're not. And if initiatives like that don't have any real teeth, then ultimately, you know, if they're not going to throw banks out for lack of action or whatever, and it's just going to be a sort of jolly collegiate talking shop, then we have to question whether that voluntary approach is really enough. And I suppose I've seen voluntary approaches for too long now. And I would advocate we need much stronger mandatory regulation on net zero, on transition plans and standards and so on. Fantastic. Lovely to have you with us, Bevis. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you for having me. You're very welcome. You have been listening to the CEO of Triodos Bank UK and environmentalist Dr. Bevis Watts. Download and subscribe to our series at convex.podbean.com or search The Convex Conversation on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple and Google Podcasts or wherever you listen to yours. That's it for 2023. I'll be back in the new year with more inspirational guests. See you then.